As we've been looking for the past group of weeks, today we continue our look at the book of Romans. The book of Romans is a very interesting book. Uh, It's a book that if you want to have a good understanding of Christian theology, if you want to have a good understanding of a synopsis of the theology of Scripture, the book of Romans is one of the key books that you would look for that. Uh, Because you have a lot of details here explained for us, you have a lot of things shown to us, and it's also a book that's meant to provoke things within us. So my goal when we go through this book, a segment at a time, is to not skip the things that are meant to provoke us a little bit, because what it does is it prompts spiritual maturity in my heart and in your heart, and I believe anyone that will take these words to heart will be prompted to grow in their faith. And so we've been trying to take an introspective approach to our study of the book of Romans because we don't want to look at this book and think that the Apostle Paul, under the Holy Spirit's inspiration, was primarily just talking about other people. He wasn't just talking about other people. He wants us to be able to look at these issues that he brings up and see what the Lord wants us to understand in regard to our own walk with Christ. And so today we're in Romans chapter 2. And uh, we started Romans 2 last week, and so we finished off with verse 11. Today we'll pick up at verse 12 of Romans chapter 2. And the big question that we're going to be asking as we look at this, and you'll see why this is our big question today, but our big question is this, what will you do with what you've been given? What will you do with what you've been given? If you would, take your Bibles and open with me to Romans chapter 2, starting with verse 12. And again, we'll be asking that question, what will you do with what you've been given? And starting with verse 12 in Romans chapter 2, we read this. For all who have sinned without the law will also perish without the law, and all who have sinned under the law will be judged by the law. For it is not the hearers of the law who are righteous before God but the doers of the law who will be justified. For when Gentiles who do not have the law by nature do what the law requires, they are a law to themselves, even though they do not have the law. They show that the work of the law is written on their hearts, while their conscience also bears witness, and their conflicting thoughts accuse or even excuse them on that day when, according to my gospel, God judges the secrets of men by Christ Jesus. But if you call yourself a Jew and rely on the law and boast in God and know His will and approve what is excellent because you are instructed from the law, and if you are sure that you yourself are a guide to the blind, a light to those who are in darkness, an instructor of the foolish, a teacher of children, having in the law the embodiment of knowledge and truth, you then, who teach others, do you not teach yourself. While you preach against stealing, do you steal? You who say that one must not commit adultery, do you commit adultery? You who abhor idols, do you rob temples? You who boast in the law, dishonor God by breaking the law. For as it is written, the name of God is blasphemed among the Gentiles because of you. For circumcision indeed is of value if you obey the law. But if you break the law, your circumcision becomes uncircumcision. So if a man who is uncircumcised keeps the precepts of the law, will not his uncircumcision be regarded as circumcision? Then he who is physically uncircumcised but keeps the law will condemn you who have the written code and circumcision 
but break the law. For no one is a Jew who is merely one outwardly, nor is circumcision outward and physical. But a Jew is one inwardly. And circumcision is a matter of the heart, by the Spirit, not by the letter. His praise is not from man, but from God. Let's pray. Lord, we thank you so much for the privilege to be able to gather together today and to look at your word together and to worship you. Lord, we recognize that this is a gift. This is a a blessing that you have allowed us to experience. We know, Lord, that our brothers and sisters in Christ throughout this world may not have the privilege to enjoy this freedom to assemble that we enjoy right now. So we're grateful for it, and we don't want to make light of it. Lord, we're grateful likewise for the privilege that it is for us to be able to think about the content of your word and to grow in our walk with you as we meditate on the things that you communicate here. Lord, we know that your Holy Spirit points us in the direction of all truth and helps us to understand these things because naturally speaking, these are things that would be beyond our understanding. But we're grateful, Lord, that you help us to understand what you've communicated. And we pray that as we understand it, that by your grace, we would put it into practice. So, Lord, thank you now for the privilege to spend a little time together looking at it, and we pray that you'd speak to our hearts powerfully as your Holy Spirit is at work within us. And we pray this all in Jesus' name. Amen. So, if if we took an honest self-assessment of our lives, and obviously I think that that's a good thing for us to do from time to time anyway, but if we take an honest self-assessment of our lives, I think that all of us could probably identify a few areas where we've been blessed with gifts or privileges that others may not have necessarily received. So in your life, those privileges might relate to things like where you were born or when you were born, uh, what kind of health you've had the privilege to experience, maybe the strength of your family of origin or your educational opportunities or maybe some of the financial blessings you've been given. And in addition to those things, it might also be possible for you to identify uh, ways in which you've been privileged spiritually, spiritual blessings that you can identify that the Lord, by His grace, has allowed to come into your life and He's allowed you to experience. So what are we doing with the gifts and the privileges that we've been given in any of those areas? Are we grateful for them? Are we using those gifts and privileges to be a blessing to others? Are we allowing those gifts to have an impact on us the way God originally intended when He allowed us to experience those gifts and blessings and privileges to begin with? And I bring that up because one of the saddest things to witness is the misuse or the devaluation of blessings and advantages that the Lord allows certain people to experience. That's the type of thing that's being addressed in the portion of Scripture that we're looking at today. That was something that was a legitimate issue among the people who claimed to have a special relationship with God during the era in which Paul wrote the book of Romans. And I think it's an issue that we all still wrestle with today maybe in slightly different contexts, or maybe even in slightly different ways, but it's still an issue that we wrestle with. And so I want us to ask the question of ourselves, while we look at the examples that are given in this portion of Scripture, what will we do with what God has given us? Not so much what other people are going to do with what God has given them, but what will we do with what God has given us? 
And in a related way, as we look at this portion of Scripture, I think it, it begins by inviting us to ask this question as well when we look at the first section. I'll reread those verses in just a moment. But for starters, when we think about what are we going to do with what God has given us, I think part of it is asking the question, will we live out what we claim to believe? Will we live out what we claim to believe? Look again at verse 12 and some of the verses following that. Again, it says, For all who have sinned without the law will also perish without the law, and all who have sinned under the law will be judged by the law. For it is not the hearers of the law who are righteous before God, but the doers of the law who will be justified. And then when you look at verse 14, it says this, For when Gentiles who do not have the law by nature do what the law requires, they are a law to themselves, even though they do not have the law. They show that the work of the law is written on their hearts, while their conscience also bears witness, and their conflicting thoughts accuse or even excuse them on that day when, according to my gospel, God judges the secrets of man by Christ Jesus. Let's pause there for just a second, but I want you to keep that all in mind as we take a few moments to think about these portions of Scripture, these verses here that are outlined for us. So when you're looking at the Bible and you're taking, you know, if you pick up a copy of the Bible and you open it up to the beginning, you'll come across the book of Genesis and you'll come across several books after that. Genesis, Exodus, Leviticus, Numbers, Deuteronomy. And those five books, sometimes I hear them referred to as the Pentateuch, but other times we simply just refer to those five books that are the initial books we have in the Scriptures as the law. Typically, they're just referred to as the law, or sometimes they're referred to as the law of Moses. And in that context, when you're reading through those five books, you can see that God revealed more about His holiness. Uh, he also revealed more about the standards for living that He expected the Jewish people to live by. Now, we know that Christ came to this earth to fulfill and to keep the law of the Old Covenant perfectly for us, because by nature, we were never able to do so, nor were the Jewish people who were the original recipients of that law. But when you look at this portion of Scripture from Romans, it appears that some of the Jewish people mistakenly believed that they were doing a good job of keeping the law apart from the help of Christ. They thought, some of them, in fact, maybe thought they were doing a great job of keeping the law of God apart from Christ's help. Now, the Gentile nations were largely ignorant of God's law. Uh, generally speaking, they did, not, they did not have access to it. Um, generally speaking, they were not necessarily aware of it. But Paul starts speaking of conscience in this portion of Scripture. And as a matter of conscience, Paul points out that some of the Gentiles were actually living like practitioners of the Old Testament law, even without knowing the particulars, even without having read Genesis, Exodus, Leviticus, Numbers, Deuteronomy, even without having read those five books of the Pentateuch or the five books of the Law of Moses, some of them were living like practitioners of that content that the Lord had revealed through Moses. Now, I believe that the, the Lord facilitated this uh, through His Holy Spirit as He spoke to their consciences and pointed them in the direction of the truth. And when you're speaking of the truth of the law, and when you're trying to summarize what the Lord was trying to communicate to His people through that, Scripture makes it clear that the law could actually be summed up rather simply. Now, it's not simple to live out, but it's simple to summarize. 
those who were living under the law were called to love God and to love one another. So you could summarize the whole law by saying, love God completely and don't hold anything back from Him. And then display that your love for God is genuine by loving the people that He places in your life. Even the people who have personalities that rub you the wrong way, even the people that maybe have sinned against you, there aren't qualifiers on it, right? It's love God and love the people that the Lord has graciously allowed you to interact with. In fact, Jesus made comments about this in Matthew chapter 22 that I just want to read. And in Matthew chapter 22, verses 34 to 40, the Scripture says this. It says, But when the Pharisees heard that he had silenced the Sadducees, they gathered together. And one of them, a lawyer, asked him a question to test him. Teacher, which is the great commandment in the law? Let me pause there for just a second before I continue reading. Sometimes I wonder when I read portions of Scripture like this, what kind of voice inflection was being used by the person that was initially saying these things? Because here it tells us that this was a lawyer, and this tells us that his reason for asking this wasn't necessarily because he wanted to learn something. He wanted to test Jesus. He was provoking. He was doing something to kind of needle around and maybe even cause Jesus to embarrass himself. And so the way he says it here, it says, I'll reread verse 35 of Matthew 22, but it says, and one of them, a lawyer, asked him a question to test him. Teacher, which is the great commandment of the law, right? Do you think it might be said, have said like that? Which is the great commandment of the law? You know, you almost see the squint and the sneer a little bit. Which is the great commandment of the law? I'm just curious. Do you know? You seem to know stuff. You go around teaching people. Lots of people want to hear what you have to say. What's the great commandment of the law? Kind of like, you know, maybe even elbowing one of his friends, like, watch this, watch this. Let me see if I could get him here. So Jesus looks at the guy, and the Scripture tells us, it says, And he said to him, You shall love the Lord your God with all your heart and with all your soul and with all your mind. This is the great and first commandment. And a second is like it. You shall love your neighbor as yourself. On these two commandments depend all the law and the prophets. He's saying the whole Old Testament, the law and the prophets, as it was sometimes called in that era. He says the whole thing depend on these two commandments. Love God with every part of you and love other people as you love yourself. So that remains God's calling on our lives, does it not? Does He still want us to practice that or would we be like, oh, that's so Old Testament. Loving God and loving people, please. We're New Testament Christians. We don't have to do that stuff, right? We don't have to love God and love people. That's so old school. Who does old school stuff? I want to be current. I want to be modern, right? Um, but what's Christ teaching us? He's effectively teaching us that this is an ongoing thing. He's saying, like, that's, you could summarize the whole teaching of the law and the prophets that way, but the truth is it's obvious when you look at what Christ was saying, and even when you look at what Paul's teaching here in Romans chapter 2, that this is the type of thing that we're being called to continue practicing. We're called to love Him with our whole heart. We're called to love one another like we love and we care for ourselves. And when we start to veer off course, which all of us have done, and sometimes we do just on a moment's notice without even realizing we're going in that direction, when we start to veer off course, we're, we're called to listen to the guiding counsel of the Holy Spirit who speaks to our consciences. And He helps us, knowing that there's going to be a day when God will judge our secret lives and our private thoughts by Christ Jesus, just as Romans 2.16 taught, which we read a few moments ago. So if we claim to have faith in Christ, 
If we claim to believe the teaching of His Word, will we actually choose to live out what we claim to believe? That was a challenge that Paul was laying down for those who had grown up in Judaism and seemed to be overly self-confident in their personal merits. And I think it's a, a, a challenge that we should take to heart as well because we've been blessed with even more spiritual blessings than they were. Even more. You and I, presently, right now, right here, we've been blessed with even more spiritual blessings than they were. Think about the era in which you and I live. We live after Christ's crucifixion. We live after Christ's resurrection. As believers in Jesus Christ under the new covenant, we are indwelled with and gifted by the Holy Spirit. We also live in an era where the Lord has caused His church to grow and expand all throughout this world. And He's also given us access to the completed canon of Scripture. That's a pretty big list of privileges. So if those who came before us had no excuse for failing to live out what they claimed to believe, I think that's even more true for me and for you. I think it's even more true for us. Now, thankfully, we're blessed with the indwelling power of Christ to walk with the kind of integrity that only He can ultimately foster. He lives within us. He empowers us. He doesn't look at you and me and say, hey, live this out without giving us His strength to do it and His guiding counsel. So we're blessed with the presence of Christ in our day-to-day life to actually live these things out. I actually love what it says to us in Hebrews chapter 13, verse 18. But here you have the writer of Hebrews saying, Pray for us, for we are sure that we have a clear conscience, desiring to act honorably in all things. And the idea here is that, listen, I've got, we've got to be living out. We're asking for you to pray for us that we would live out what we claim to believe. That we would, that we would act honorably in all things, that we wouldn't just be people who are great at at paying lip service to these concepts, but that we would live out what we claim to believe. But maybe you've heard all this before. You know, some of you, maybe you've grown up in a church context, maybe you're doing some training in biblical studies, and, and maybe you've heard all this before. Maybe even the content of the book of Romans, maybe you could just like, you know, with the snap of a finger, um, just kind of, you know, go through an outline of the book of Romans in a very clear and distinct way. Maybe these are things that you're familiar with before, and maybe you're so familiar with it that you feel that you could probably even teach it to others. Well, that's great if that's the case, but are we willing to learn what we claim we might be able to teach? Because isn't that the follow-up that Paul asks in the next section? Are we willing to be teachable? Are we willing to learn the very things we claim to be able to teach? Look at what it says in verse 17 down to verse 24. It says, but if you call yourself a Jew and rely on the law and boast in God and know His will and approve what is excellent because you are instructed from the law, and if you are sure that you yourself are a guide to the blind, a light to those who are in darkness, an instructor of the foolish, a teacher of children, having in the law the embodiment of knowledge and truth, you then who teach others, do you not teach yourself? While you preach against stealing, do you steal? You who say that one must not commit adultery, do you commit adultery? You who abhor idols, do you rob temples? 
You who boast in the law, dishonor God by breaking the law. For as it is written, the name of God is blasphemed among the Gentiles because of you. Let's pause there. That's a pretty convicting paragraph in Scripture, wouldn't you say? And it's meant to be. We should welcome that kind of conviction. You know, years ago, uh, when I was a new pastor, some of my, my, some very distinct moments happened to me during that particular season of my life. Certain things that I think will just probably stay in my brain for the rest of my life because they just had elements to them that, that cautioned me. I could tell that the Lord was using certain things to be a caution to me so that I didn't go in a particular direction. But I remember, as a relatively new pastor, I think I'd only been pastoring maybe a year or two at this point, I was invited to attend a training seminar that was focused on church health and community outreach, two very good things. Obviously, as pastors, we want to do what we can to try and help facilitate church health. We want to facilitate community outreach. And when I heard that these training seminars were going to be available, I thought, okay, I want to go to that. I want to be part of that. I want to learn how best to facilitate that in the context where I have the privilege to serve. So I was excited to go to this, and I actually was speaking to another pastor, someone who had been pastoring for uh, you know a fair amount of time at that point, several decades. I asked him if he was planning on going as well, and actually when I asked him this, my assumption was that he would say yes. I kind of thought many of us were just all planning to go to this, particularly because it was provided for us. It wasn't even something we had to pay for. We were able to go to it and not have to pay for it. And uh, so I thought he'd probably say yes to this. And I knew at the time his church was struggling. And to be honest, if I'm real honest, I also know that his track record at the time wasn't so great in regard to, to leadership. But when I asked him if he was going to go to this training, he informed me that he would not be attending this training. And I think he could tell that I was a little bit puzzled by that because I thought, well, why? Like, we don't even have to pay for it. It's being paid for for us. This is useful. This is helpful stuff that I think we all need. And in fact, what he did was he followed up my curiosity or my question by saying this, And I think I'm quoting him probably like 99% exact, but this is how I remember it in my mind. He said, I have attended so many of these things that I could teach them now. That's what he said. I've attended so many of these things that I could teach them now. And he said it with a little bit of an edge. And I remember in the moment it bristled against me because I also remember after hearing him say that, thinking to myself, maybe you could teach it. But it's a shame that you've never bothered to put into practice what you've learned. That would have been brave to actually say it, right? I didn't say it, but I remember at the time thinking it. Thinking, yeah, maybe you could teach it, but maybe you should start using it now. Actually do something with this content. And I bring that up because when you look at this portion of God's Word, I, it's easy to have that similar feeling toward what Paul's saying here in this, in this paragraph. Because you have Paul, who, by the way, had grown up Jewish, And he had a strong love. He had a strong affinity for the Jewish people. He loved them. He wanted them to experience the spiritual awakening that he had been graced to experience by Jesus. And in fact, when we read the Scriptures, we could see that God had chosen the Jews to experience a myriad of spiritual and cultural blessings, including the fact that he sent his son to this earth as one who would be born a Jew, But we could see from this chapter in Romans, particularly from this paragraph, that it's possible to become cocky about your blessings instead of humbly grateful. 
We could easily become cocky about the things that the Lord's entrusted to us instead of being thankful for them and grateful for them. And it's also possible, and I think probably some of us can think of specific people in our lives that fit this category, but it's also possible to become an expert in the Scriptures without connecting the knowledge you've stored in your head to your, to your heart and to your hands. I remember noticing this when I was a, a student in Bible college in particular. A very good experience uh, going through Bible college. I learned a lot, and I was blessed by many godly people who invested in my life, both professors and fellow students. But it always stood out to me when I would notice this, and it seemed a bit tragic to me, to study with some classmates. Now, thankfully, it wasn't a majority, but there were definitely some classmates who I would observe them as they would earn great grades. And they'd study biblical concepts, and they'd commit a lot of these things to their memory. But their lives confirmed that, effectively, even though they were memorizing Scripture, they hadn't learned a thing. They hadn't learned a thing. They may have memorized some information, but I used to wonder, are they even open to the Holy Spirit transforming their thinking? Or is this like a trivia quiz to somehow gather this information, do well on a test, regurgitate the information, but never allow it to connect to their hearts and their hands. Unless I point the finger at other people, that also applies to me too and to you as well. Because isn't that all of us? We're all in the same boat, right? We all struggle with that. It's much easier at times to allow something to permeate our mind than it is for it to work its way into our heart and then eventually into our hands. And one of the most tragic things about becoming unteachable when it comes to the Word of God and the truth that God is communicating is the negative impact it it not only has on our own lives, but it also starts to have a negative impact on unbelievers who may be observing those who claim to be God's people. And Paul was concerned about that, and he poses questions in this portion of Scripture like this. In Romans 2.21, he says, You then who teach others, do you not teach yourself? While you preach against stealing, do you steal? You who say that one must not commit adultery, do you commit adultery? Do you suppose those are questions that we might benefit from asking ourselves? Right? We could certainly pick on the shortcomings of other people if we like, But wouldn't it be more beneficial for us to force ourselves to wrestle with these kind of questions instead? To look at ourselves, to be introspective about the type of things brought up in this portion of Scripture. It's great preventative medicine so that we don't end up hardening our hearts against the Lord and turning people away from following Christ. Christ desires humility among His people. And He desires to see humility among His people as a reflection of His heart, and a reflection of His example. And with humility comes teachability. We can claim to be know-it-alls if we choose. If that's something that we want to do, if we want to go down that path, we can claim to be know-it-alls. But who benefits from that? Truth is, nobody benefits from that, right? We can claim to be able to teach every side of every issue Jesus ever communicated. But are we also willing to sit down Maybe stop talking for five minutes and listen to the counsel of His Spirit as He seeks to apply the teaching of His Word to our hearts. Will we humbly learn what we claim to be able to teach? I don't know if you listen to U2. I do 
probably too much. I like them a lot, and I get a lot of good uh, material from them from time to time. There's a cool line in one of their songs, and it, it echoes this kind of thought. Uh, they say, very simply, it's hard to listen while you teach. It's hard to listen while you teach. And it's like, it's hard to listen if you won't stop talking. Right? It's hard to listen if you won't stop yapping. And here in this kind of context, you have a group of people that Paul says, great, you think you're able to teach all of these things, but he challenges them, are you willing to learn? Are you willing to humbly accept the very things that you claim to be experts in? You may know it as data points, but are you willing to let it connect to your heart and to your hands? Christ desires humility among his people. He wants us to have a teachable spirit. He wants us to be willing to learn the very things that we claim to be able to teach. And with that in mind, I want to point out one additional thing about the, the subjects that Paul is addressing here in the second half of Romans 2. Because what he's doing, he's scraping around at the recesses of our hearts, and with the example he uses, he's also asking us to think about one additional thing here, at least one additional thing, and that's this. Will we seek the praise of God over the praise of men? Will we seek the praise of God over the praise of men? Let's finish up by rereading verses 25 to 29 and just expressing a few quick thoughts on that. But in verse 25, it says this, For circumcision is indeed... Excuse me, for circumcision indeed is of value if you obey the law, but if you break the law, your circumcision becomes uncircumcision. So if a man who is uncircumcised keeps the precepts of the law, will not his uncircumcision be regarded as circumcision? Then he who is physically uncircumcised but keeps the law will condemn you who have the written code and circumcision but break the law. For no one is a Jew who is merely one outwardly, nor is circumcision outward and physical. But a Jew is one inwardly, and circumcision is a matter of the heart, by the Spirit, not by the letter. His praise is not from man, but from God. So here again you have the Apostle Paul effectively encouraging us to ask the question, will we seek the praise of God over the praise of God? Of man. Let's talk about the Jewish covenants for just a moment here. Specifically, the covenantal sign that the Jewish people were given by God as a visible symbol of his unique relationship with them was circumcision. And the way that was practiced is on the eighth day after a male child was born, he was to be circumcised, and that was to serve as a sign of the covenant that God had made with this group of people. Now, I know that you didn't come to church today hoping we were going to talk about circumcision. So, that's just bonus, okay? Um, interestingly, by the way, and this is fascinating, look this up and, uh, and see this for yourself. Um, do you ever wonder, why on the eighth day? Like, why on the eighth? Like, why did God say on the eighth day? You know, practice circumcision on the eighth day. Do you know that somewhat recently... Uh, they've discovered that that's when the blood begins to coagulate for an infant in the, the proper way. That on the eighth day, that that's when blood coagulation tends to happen. I think that's fascinating in light of the fact that, uh, you know, during this era of time where they didn't have hospitals and things like we enjoy now, and didn't have, uh, you know, like the, the kind of conditions where we could get medical procedures done, that in that context, the Lord's like, do this on the eighth day. Do you suppose he knows a little bit about the people that he created? I just find that fascinating. When I read that not that long ago, actually, I read it a few years ago, but I reread it not that long ago. 
um, I was fascinated by it. I thought, wow, that's interesting to think about blood coagulation starting to really happen on a deeper level, on the kind of level that you'd want in this kind of procedure, when an infant hits the eighth day after birth, and they're breathing in air and all of that, and their body develops the way that they're, they're developing on the eighth day. And here, Scripture tells us that on the eighth day, the Lord said, that's the day you're to circumcise your male infants. And that was the covenantal sign that God had given to the Jewish people under the old covenant. Now, we live under the new covenant. And in a similar way, we've been given baptism as a visible testimony of our relationship with God under the new covenant. But does the act of circumcision, or in our context, we could say the act of baptism, guarantee the salvation of a soul? Does being circumcised save a soul? Does being baptized save a soul? There are some people that believe it. But when you look at what Scripture actually teaches, the truth is absolutely not. Circumcision never saved anyone, and baptism never saved anybody. Salvation is by grace through faith in Jesus Christ. So the removal of a foreskin does not save a soul, neither does being immersed in water. The point of these symbols is to testify visibly and powerfully to something spiritual that the Lord is doing within us. They're visible symbols of a spiritual reality that the Lord accomplishes within our hearts as we trust in Him. So is anyone ever going to be able to come before the Lord someday and brag about their circumcision as if that would impress Him? Of course not, right? And likewise, does this give people cause for boasting uh, among one another? By the way, if anyone ever boasts that they've been circumcised, I don't know that you ever, I don't know that you are required to be friends with such a person, all right? A little too odd. But I bring it up because Paul brings it up here. And one of my favorite things about the Apostle Paul is that he always he, he doesn't seem to hesitate to say an awkward thing here or there, right? When you get through Scripture, it's like, do we have to? I don't, I don't want to talk about that. Well, he brought it up, so we don't want to skip it, right? But effectively, what he's saying is that there were people in that context that were doing that, as ridiculous as that sounds, bragging about the fact that that you know that they had. Uh, been raised in the culture and in the custom of practicing circumcision on the eighth day, and it's like a bragging point. And what does that mean? Well, it means that their faith was effectively in ceremony and tradition instead of their faith being in the Lord who was pleading with them to see that salvation is found in no other name under heaven than than the name of Jesus Christ. They're placing their faith in tradition. They were placing their faith in ceremony. They were placing their faith in visible external symbols instead of placing their faith in Jesus Christ who changes us from within, who makes us a brand new person as we trust in Him. There is salvation in no other name other than the name of Jesus Christ. Acts chapter 4 in particular tells us this. It says in Acts 4 verse 12, it says, And there is salvation in no one else, for there is no other name under heaven given among men by which we must be saved. And that's what Paul was trying to be emphatic about communicating to those who were placing their faith in lesser things. And when we trust in Jesus Christ, so let's make this personal. Let's not just talk about groups of people that lived in the distant past. Let's talk about us. When we trust in Jesus Christ, He not only changes our heart, He gives us a brand new one. He gives us a brand new one. Heart. That's what Paul was getting at when he said here, but a Jew is one inwardly, and circumcision is a matter of the heart, 
by the Spirit, not by the letter. His praise is not from man, but from God. That was in verse 29 of Romans 2. So when the Lord gives us a new heart, what's He doing? Well, He's helping us to no longer live for the praise of men. He's helping us to start living for His praise and for His glory. We start learning to care about what matters to Him. His desires become our priorities. His approval is what we seek. And we rejoice in the confidence that the love of God the Father that He has for God the Son is also something that we will forever experience because we are counted, in, we are counted as righteous in Christ, the one in whom we believe. So just as God the Father looks at God the Son with the deepest love possible, we are reckoned as being in Jesus Christ, united to Him, And in the eyes of God the Father, we're seen the same exact way as we trust in Jesus Christ with that kind of love. It's a dangerous thing to live for the praise of men. It's not God's calling on any of our lives. And in the end, it only leads to regret and sorrow. That's all it will leave you with, regret and sorrow, if you live for the praise of men. But living by faith in Christ, for the glory of Christ, with His honor on our minds results in a life of joy that is not diminished by changing circumstances. My circumstances change all the time, and your circumstances change all the time. But we can have joy in Christ as we walk by faith in Him in every circumstance He places us in. And this was something that the Apostle Paul was praying that his Jewish brothers and sisters would one day experience. That's what he's talking about in a passage like this, and he's being purposely confrontational in the kind of way that someone who loves somebody else might point out something that's deficient in their lives. There are people in your life and my life who have pointed out difficult things to us along the way that we probably bristled with at first, but in time we started to look back at those things and realized the only reason someone would say that to me is because they loved me. And you have the Apostle Paul with love for his Jewish brothers and sisters saying to them, Don't live your life for the praise of men. Live your life for the glory of God. Seek the praise of God, not the praise of men. It's likewise our Lord's desire that we would experience that change of heart as well. That you and I wouldn't go through our lives seeking the praise of men. That we would understand that our lives are to be lived for the glory and honor of Jesus Christ. So again, looking at this passage... Thinking about the things that the Apostle Paul purposely tries to be confrontational about in a healthy way. He's not trying to be jerky about bringing these things up. He's trying to, in a healthy way, provoke us to think about things that sometimes can be difficult to think about. But it forces us to ask some questions. Will we live out what we claim to believe? Will we learn what we claim to be able to teach? Will we seek the praise of God over the praise of men? What will we do with the significant blessings we've already been given? Let's pray. Lord, thank You so much for Your Word and for the privilege that it is to be able to read it together, think about it, meditate on it today. Lord, it's fascinating when we look at a portion of Scripture like this, and we could see that in a very healthy, 
And in a very loving way, you're trying to provoke us to understand things that would be very easy for us to try and diminish in our thinking. Lord, we recognize that as men and women who live in a fallen world and men and women who, who wrestle with our old nature, that asking ourselves probing questions can be the type of thing that we resist doing. But you don't really leave us option not to when we read a chapter like this. And even as we go throughout this book, we'll see the chapter after chapter. You inspired the Apostle Paul to bring up a variety of things that aren't always easy for us to wrestle with. But Lord, we're grateful that you blessed us in so many ways. We know, Lord, that we don't deserve a single one of these blessings. But we pray that we do the right things with what you've blessed us with. Again, Lord, you've given us the privilege to live after the crucifixion and resurrection of your Son, Jesus Christ. You've allowed us the blessing of being indwelled with your Holy Spirit through faith in your Son. You've allowed us the blessing to to be spiritually gifted by your Holy Spirit as we trust in your Son. You've given us the privilege, Lord, to live in an era where we have brothers and sisters in Christ all throughout this world. Your church has spread some faraway places. It's such a gift to have that kind of fellowship and to know that most places where we go on this earth, we can find brothers and sisters in the faith. And again, Lord, you've given us the completed canon of Scripture. We don't just have Genesis and Exodus and Leviticus and Numbers and Deuteronomy. We have the law. We have the poetry sections. We have the prophetic portions of your word. We have the gospels. We have the recording of early church history. We have Paul's letters. We have the general letters. We have the book of Revelation. You've revealed to us things that are about to come that will have a direct impact on us, and you've told us to continually look forward to the fact that the day is coming when you will return. You've revealed these things to us ahead of time, and in the meantime, you've blessed us in ways ways that are just so far beyond what people who lived before us experienced. So what are we doing with these blessings, Lord? This is the type of thing that you're forcing us to wrestle with. By your grace, we pray that we would grow. As men and women who have been genuinely blessed by you, we pray that we wouldn't spend our lives shelving these blessings or forgetting about them or taking them for granted, but we pray that we would utilize them, that we would, with gratefulness toward you, live out the kind of things that you inspire us and empower us to live out. Again, Lord, we know we can't do this in our own strength. To try and do that in our own strength would just make us legalistic and judgmental, and that's not your desire for us either. You want us to recognize that every day that we live is a day that we can depend on you and you show yourself faithful to us. So, Lord, today we pray that we would rely on your strength and that we would seek your strength pray that the same would be tomorrow. We pray that when we get to the middle of this week that we would look at at your word and be reminded yet again that your strength is sufficient for us and that there's not a single day we will ever live where we can go beyond it. We need you every single day and we're grateful that you're present with us and that you desire to empower us so that we can walk with you faithfully in the midst of a fallen world. So thank you, Lord, for these gifts. Thank you for your blessings. And thank you for the challenging reminders that you give to us through your word. Help us to remember that there is salvation in no other name under heaven but the name of your Son, Jesus Christ, in whom we place our trust. And we pray this all in Jesus' name. 
Amen.